together, and then we'll look into the Word of God as we think of another attribute of God in our theme this morning. Lord, we've sung this hymn that affirms so many about your characteristics, your attributes. We thank you that you, again, are not changing from one week to the next, that you do remain the same in your essence and in your nature. And Lord, because you are that way, we thank you that there is stability and there is hope for the future. And we thank you that it is a reasonable thing to do, to seek to know you, because you have revealed yourself not only in creation, but you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you that you've also revealed yourself in the written pages of your word. And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Christ to see the Father, to see the Holy Spirit today, and in so doing that we might be brought to understand who you are more accurately, and therefore led to yield to you, trust you, and surrender to you, as we've said earlier. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there's an interesting admonition found in the fifth chapter of Paul's gospel, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and it says this, Be imitators of God. Now, when you read that and you say to yourself, I'm supposed to imitate God. I hope you'll be like me and you might react and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I might be able to do some things that God can do, maybe, at least partially or on some level, because that is true. There are some things that we can do and actually imitate God. God and what he's like on some level. For example, there are those aspects of God we call communicable attributes. It's a big word, but it's the word theologians use to try to distinguish. There are some things we can do to imitate God. There are some aspects and attributes about God. We cannot imitate those. Those are incommunicable uh, is the technical term. And these attributes that we can imitate of God, for example, is found right there in Ephesians where he says, be imitators of God. And then he says, we are to forgive as God has forgiven us in Christ. So we imitate what God is like. He's a forgiving God. We're to also be similarly willing and able to forgive others who sin against us. And then also he says in that same passage, he says, we're to walk in love just as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. Those things we can't imitate. But there are other attributes of God that we will never imitate. We can't even come close. Things like God's almighty power to accomplish anything he wills to do, what we call his omnipotence, his being almighty. Well, we're not almighty. We're weak people who need his help. Uh, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere uh, at once. We can't do that. And clearly, his immutability, we talked about he never changes uh, clearly that doesn't apply to us either. Now we're going to look this morning at a, an attribute of God that is what we call communicable, that is we can imitate this. We're thinking this morning about the wisdom of God. God only wise. Now while none of us will ever gain the full depth of God's wisdom, the Bible instructs us to seek after the wisdom of God, the wisdom that comes from God. And the first thing I want to do this morning is I'm going to lay out for you uh, sort of a a plan of where I want to go this morning. The first thing I want to do is I want to clarify what do we mean when we mean God's wisdom? 
When the Bible affirms that God is wise, what does that mean? That's the first point we'll look at. The second thing I want to do this morning is I want to take a few moments and examine just a couple of examples of God's wisdom in action as revealed in redemptive history. And then thirdly, I'd like us to consider several practical areas as we try to apply this area of, well, if God is wise, he has acted in wisdom in history, then how should that affect us? What does it mean for us to seek wisdom? And what does it look like in a practical way? So the first point then is clarifying God's wisdom. The last verse of Romans chapter 16 is a, is a benediction to God. He says, to the only wise God be all glory. The Bible affirms again and again that God is wise. And what does it mean, though, when they say that God is a wise God? Sometimes people can use that about you and say, oh, you're a wise guy. That's not necessarily a compliment. Clearly, that's not what is mind in mind here when it talks about God. I've come across a very helpful chapter, which I would commend to your reading, uh, from the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, he is dealing with several chapters on the wisdom of God, and he has a very helpful definition in your notes. According to Packer, he summarizes it in this way. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So God is has the ability to know and, and is able to see what is the best goal and the best means to attain that goal. That's what he means by the wisdom of God. Now, we must understand now that wisdom understood that way is different than the, the knowledge of God. Uh, the Bible speaks of God's uh, uh, omniscience, we call it, God's knowledge of all things. That's in the intellectual realm. But God's Wisdom is dealing with the practical and moral realm. Indeed, it is actually that which, as someone else has said, uh, God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Uh, that's a very helpful definition also from Grudem, who, who clarifies what God's wisdom is. And that's why we can celebrate the fact that God, as a wise God, always is having those good goals set out in front of him. And he's pursuing it in ways that are in keeping with what's the best way to accomplish that good goal. And when Paul has reflected upon the wonder of God and his wisdom and how his wise ways uh, seem to unfold, he celebrates that at the end of the Romans chapter 11. Maybe you could take the time to find Romans chapter 11, which is the text I put down this morning, although I'm all over the place. When I'm, using, when I'm doing thematic sermons, I'm, I'm going to pick verses that are all over in Scripture to try to help us understand uh, the attribute of God we're looking at. Romans 11, verse 33. Paul celebrates the greatness of God, having uh, briefly reviewed some ways in which God has worked in history. And he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to God that it might be paid back to him again? What he's saying here is that no one will ever, as a human, will never fully plumb the depths of God's wisdom. God has these 
these, these goals and ability to work these goals toward ends that he knows uh, full well, and we'll never fully ga- uh, grasp all of that. It's beyond us. It's amazing how God is working toward these goals and choosing the best way to accomplish those goals. Now, he says here again, God has never requested nor has he ever needed advice on how to get to those goals. And I find that curious. As I think about that, I thought to myself, wait a minute. Maybe some of you are like me. Isn't it curious how often we try to offer God advice? You ever done that? Where you say to yourself, well, you know, now these things have just occurred and none of them are good, God. And why in the world are you doing this? This is not helping anything. This is actually raising my blood pressure and causing me to get very impatient. Do you ever do that kind of reasoning with God? And you say, okay, well, God, let me give you some advice. What you really should be doing here is to make this happen. And so we lay it out there as to what we think is the best goal and the best way to get to that goal. And so we sort of have in our minds, maybe you don't articulate it, but sometimes you think those things. We all have done it, I'm sure, is that we think we know the best way to the goals that we're pursuing. I think back years ago to a time in my life where I was in one of those places where I was really wrestling and telling God, I don't like the direction things are going here, and I really think we need to figure out another path. I had gone to a church in Virginia where I was pastoring there. It's been about two years, two years long enough for me to know things are going from bad to worse, and it's happening in a way that I was just very, very, very discouraged and very concerned. There were someone, someone, people in the church who were spreading rumors about me as if I had misbehaved with someone in the church inappropriately with one of the women, uh, which was clearly not true. And there were several of the deacons who had made comments to me which indicated, as far as I was concerned, that they were racists. That was reprehensible in my mind and, and in, inconsistent with how possibly could they be in leadership in the church if they have those kinds of thoughts and views. I had a choir director who would skip the Sundays when I preached on a certain topic that he didn't particularly like and didn't agree with me on. And on and on and on it went. And I began to sort of say, okay, Lord, you've got to get me out of this nightmare because there's nothing good happening here at all. I can't see it. And that went on initially two years into that particular time in that church. And uh, how long do you think God kept me there? Well, Another year went by, third year. Another year went by, fourth year. And I'm in my fifth year in that church. And I'm just saying, Lord, Lord, have mercy upon me. As I look back, I can see now what I couldn't see at the time. I could see that God was at work. And God was at work primarily in me. Because God was trying to accomplish the goal that he had for me, that is to make me more like Christ, to make me more mature in my faith in Christ as a follower of Jesus, and to make me learn to trust him more, God was trying to work that in me. But I couldn't see it at the time. And he was choosing various means to do that, which I thought were absolutely ridiculous. But I learned it over that time. And looking back on it now, I realized I have never prayed as earnestly in my life until that time when I began to really seek God. And I learned to pray more, and I did pray more than I had ever before then. I look back and I realize that God was developing in me areas of which I said, I'm going to persevere through this thing. I'm not going to give up, and I'm going to become a patient man in the midst of trials. That's not something I wanted to learn. I had to learn it. 
I had no other choice. They owned the house I was living in. What was I going to do? And guess what else happened? After a period of time, things had not changed, things had not changed, things had not changed. I began to seek God, and I said, okay, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere you want me to go. Anywhere you want me to go. I hadn't been willing to say that before. I always wanted to sort of stay close to my family or, you know, kids could see their grandparents or whatever. I wanted to go to a nice place. So I had my agenda. And finally I said, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere you choose to send me. And I think God has a sense of humor. Because at that, at that point, God said, okay, you who are the West Virginian mountaineer, I'm going to send you to Long Island, New York. Now, you laugh, and I laugh as I think about it. But let me tell you something. This is the last place I thought I would ever live. No offense. I didn't know anything about Long Island. I'm from the mountains of West Virginia. Now, why am I saying this? Because I think you can identify with me, not with the specifics of that, those life situations, but I think you can identify with me of being in a situation in life where, while you're there, you say to yourself, there's nothing profitable happening in this awful situation. This is going from bad to worse, and God, you need to turn this around and get me somewhere else. Can you identify with that? And I realize now that God was producing profitable results. I've learned now that God was refining me. And I realized, too, looking back, one of the reasons I was so miserable and so, and so and I was not I was not a victorious, happy little Christian every day. I want you to understand that. I was struggling. I was about ready to go under. But one of the reasons I failed to have joy in that situation was because I failed to recognize God's wisdom. And the reason I didn't understand and uh, and appreciate God's wisdom is because I was assuming that the goal that God had for me and intended for me to have at that point in my life was that I would have a trouble-free life. I was assuming that God was thinking, the best thing I can do for you is give you a church where everybody loves you and everything goes great, and and life is wonderful. Somehow I was assuming that I should be spared anything that was painful, upsetting, or difficult. Could it be that many times that's the way we assume God's going to work? We assume that... If God's going to get me the goal where he wants me to be, the goal is what? A comfortable life. The best way to get me there is to avoid all problems and difficulties so I arrive on destination right on time. It's a comfortable, easy life. That's certainly what I was longing for. Still do at times. But what is God's goal? In the wisdom of God, what is his goal that he really is striving toward, that he wants to see us move toward, and that he is, in his wisdom, is taking the details of our lives and he's moving in that direction? Again, I would encourage you to read Packer's chapters in Knowing God book. I almost summarize what he says. God's ultimate goal is to bring a great host of mankind to a state in which they please God entirely and they praise God adequately and completely and endlessly. He is looking to bring people to appreciate and enjoy God forever and ever in His presence. And this is where God is all in all to them. A state in which both God and man rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love. That's the big picture. 
That's the big ultimate goal. Now, what's the short-term goal? The short-term goal is that God is going to draw men and women and boys and girls into a relationship of faith and hope and love towards Himself. And that He will deliver them from sin. He will show forth in their lives the power of His grace and He will use them to spread the good news of the Gospel to other people throughout the world. And the more you get yourself confirmed that that is really that's God's goal, then guess what? He can use all kinds of strange, difficult, and twist and turns along the way in order to get us moving in that direction. It's incredible when you look at it. And the verse that affirms that is found in Romans 8, 28. I'm going to take just a second and point this out. Page 1,347. Page 1,347 and Romans 8, 28 and 29. Paul's at the point now where he is appreciating the fact that he is so convinced that God is at work through all the twists and turns, the difficult things. He's, he himself has gone through tremendous sufferings hardships, shipwrecks, stonings, imprisonments, beatings, you name it. He's gone through it all. But what does Paul say? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good. He said God works all things together. That's the wisdom of God. Is that God is able to bring those strange things, those difficult things, and He's able to work them toward the accomplishment of the good that He wants to bring about in your life. Now, who is, it, who, is this, who is this true of? Who can claim this promise? Well, those people who love God and those people who are called, the called out ones, according to God's purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, he says, to those for those for whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is the chief one, the one who's the greatest. So he's, what is his point? Je- Jesus is committed to what? Having people come to faith in him as he fulfills his commitment to draw them to himself. And then in so doing, he's going to conform us to the image of Christ, to the character of Christ, so that we become as much like Christ as we possibly can in terms of how we respond to what's going on in life around us. That is amazing wisdom. If you really claim and believe Romans 8, 28, 29, you will join with Daniel in making Daniel's prayer your prayer. He says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom belongs to him. Some of us do not praising God very much because we're too stuck with the thought that the goal that I'm pursuing clearly must not be the same goal that God's pursuing. And that's one of the reasons why we're not filled with joy. We're not really trusting Him. We're not really on the same page with Him. God in His wisdom is committed to goals that are great goals, and He knows the best ways to reach that goal, including all sorts of difficulties, trials, and and challenges, and afflictions that we may be called to suffer. Why? To make us more like Jesus. To draw us into faith. And to trust Him and love Him. took a long time for me to learn that lesson, folks. I'm still relearning the lesson. But to, to, but to the degree that I believe that God is wise is the degree to which I know and can share in the joy I have in God's promises and in His person. 
Let's look at the second one here. Follow me here on this examining God's wisdom. I want us to give several examples of how God has worked in history in showing forth his wisdom. One realm where we see the wisdom of God, according to the Bible, is in the created world that he made. Now, I could take hours and hours and hours on this. I'd like to get a couple scientists up here, and they could really unpack this for us here. But uh, bear with me here as I acknowledge just a small glimpse, a small inkling of insight here. You see, the psalmist had a lot of time to reflect, and he affirms that God makes the heavens and earth, and that he pondered for a while how God sustains life on earth, and he pondered the fact that there's so much diverse forms of life and the complex forms of life that God has made, and he celebrates this in Psalm 104 as he thinks of the wisdom of God being displayed in all this amazing diversity and complexity of life. Verse 24, Psalm 104, 24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. If you think about pondering how God has made the world, you will begin to realize it is amazing the kind of wisdom and insight God has. Now, I'll just take a quick example. So just think for a moment what goes on in the process of the rain, the, the rain cycle, the water cycle. You have a rainstorm. This week we had lots of rain. Did everybody think about the power of God when you had all that lightning storm? Boy, I sure did. I thought, thank you, Lord. That's a homework assignment. I'm thinking about your power throughout the week when I heard that thunder and, that, and uh, saw the lightning. And so here comes the rain, and it hits the ground. And some of that rain soaks into the ground. Some of that rain uh, washes off, finds its way into streams, finds its way eventually into rivers. Those find their way eventually into larger bodies of water, which eventually become the oceans. And, this, and then through the process of evaporation, that water makes its way back up into the atmosphere. Eventually it, it, it hits little particles of dust and whatever and all this complicated stuff about how rain happens. And then it rains again. God in his wisdom has ordained all that. It's amazing. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. You ever ponder how complex the human body is? It's amazing kind of wisdom and insight that God has done. Refreshing rain and the hot, humid days of summer accomplish God's purposes. They sustain life. These are just a few examples in the created world order. We could go on and on. You just look at the human eye, the brain, whatever. You could just, there's all kinds of insights there. But the second area I want to focus on as another example of God's wisdom is the realm of redemption. Redemption. Now I'm going to give several examples here. Follow along with me here. I know it's going to come at you real fast, but one example of God's wisdom is trying to make sense of the fact that Israel, the the nation of Israel, all these Jewish people, for some reason, did not welcome and embrace Jesus, their Messiah, in in a very widespread fashion. Essentially, the majority of them rejected Jesus as Messiah when he came in the first century. Now, how do you make sense of that in the program of God when God has all these promises and all these uh, uh, plans he's going to do with Israel, here comes the Messiah, and boom, vast majority of them say, he's no Messiah we're waiting on, and they reject him. 
Well, if you read Romans 11, you begin to realize that when Jesus was rejected as Messiah, there nonetheless was a true remnant of Israel that has remained. And in his wisdom, God has brought about good results out of this obstinate, determined rejection of Israel. And the Bible goes on to explain as Paul unpacks this thing. He says the partial hardening of Israel is actually accomplishing a greater good, and that is it brings in the Gentiles, as he calls grafting them in to this stock of, uh, of this olive tree that God is growing. He uses that to talk about uh, Israel is the olive tree. He grafts in this wild shoot called the Gentiles. And one day all Israel is going to be made jealous as they see all of this growing uh, added part of the Gentiles. They're going to be grafted back in someday. And God's wisdom, I'm convinced, is too deep. It is too profound for us fully to fathom. But Paul says, listen, God is accomplishing his goals. He knows the right way to do it, and he's doing it according to his wisdom. People in the first century couldn't get past that. They couldn't understand. It didn't seem to make sense to them. Paul is reflecting on it. He's saying, you don't understand the wisdom of God. Second example I want to talk about the wisdom of God and redemption is how in the world do you solve a tension between God and his desire to enforce justice, to bring justice to bear in this world that is to make sure that when people have done wrong and broken his laws, that there is just consequences that will flow from that. He is a just God. But how do you resolve the tension with that in God and God's mercy? Where God longs to have compassion on those who are undeserving and who are in desperate need. And the answer is found in the incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the personification of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Even though Jesus was sinless, that is, he's innocent of doing anything wrong according to the laws of man or according to the laws of God. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in shame, nailed to a cross. Now, you look at that and you say, huh, in that horrendous act, of human injustice. Can God accomplish something good? In the wisdom of God, God took the most horrendous act of human injustice and He satisfied and used that to satisfy His own divine justice, providing a just way to justify sinners and through the payment of a perfect substitutionary sin sacrifice. And when Paul thinks about this wonderful message of Jesus Christ coming as a sinless Son of God, dying in our place as our substitute to satisfy the just demands of God in this most despicable form of death, in shame, and in looking at people looking and saying, no way possibly he could have done anything uh, that was... Look at the way he has died. Clearly, he surely wouldn't be the Messiah. Paul thinks about that and he says, listen... If you look at his life, if you look at Jesus' death, if you look at his resurrection, he says it's very clear. We see the manifold grace of God revealed in an incredible way. It's a way in which he says Jesus' death on the cross is not some alarming disaster in which God was caught off guard. But Ephesians chapter 5 says 
it was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Jesus Christ our Lord. Some people look at the cross and they just think, give me a break. I don't get it. And one of the reasons that they don't get it is because they don't get the wisdom of God. God was accomplishing His goals and knew the best way to accomplish it, and it defies human wisdom. And that's the last point I'm going to try to make here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a passage that's rich with these insights. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. God's wisdom, He accomplishes His purposes, oftentimes with upside-down values. You say, what does that mean? God accomplishes His goals but he does it in a way that's the opposite way we normally would tend to think is the best way to reach that goal. You see, the world system thrives on man-centered philosophy. The world system thrives on religions that emphasize and promote that people become right with God or whatever your form of deity through good works, through your own efforts, through, through uh, uh, doing things that you think are right, appropriate, and good. But God's plan of salvation turns that on its head. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says this, In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. That is, by trying to be good or trying to do all these good works, to try to have various forms of religion that they pursued, they don't know God through that. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust Him to be the one who does for them what they cannot do for themselves. And so God did not choose the type of people celebrated by this world's value system. He did not choose the wise. He did not choose the mighty and the noble. He chose the foolish, the weak, the base, the despised. He chose the nobodies. The nobodies are the ones who make up His church. And why does He do that? To magnify His grace and His glory. Because there's no one in the church who's boasting about how good they are. No one in the church of Jesus Christ is saying, you know, I'm here because I have, I've, I've reached a higher level than about 65 other people over here, and I know I'm better than these people over here, and I don't do that. And I'm not. It's not about people who see themselves as better than others. It's people who see their unworthiness, and they see the greatness of God's grace shown to us in Christ, and they give Him glory as the one who is indeed all-wise because he's created his church with people who are not the people who have anything to boast about. Their boast is in God. And he's eliminated all possibility of boasting in ourselves because it's all about God. It's not about us. That is the wisdom of God. God turned the wisdom of the world upside down because he wants to make sure that he is the one who has His glory praised. His grace is magnified. It's all about Him, and He does it through His church. Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote. I put it thick in your notes. He summarizes God's wisdom this way. God puts His glorious purposes into effect in order to demonstrate His perfect knowledge, sovereign power, and infinite grace. God's wisdom is evident as He takes the raw, fallen materials of this world and its history, to weave a garment of praise and glory for His name. Think about it. The day that Jesus was nailed to that Roman cross, 
was the day when the powers of darkness were really began to hoop it up. They were thinking, oh boy, here we go. He's going to be on that cross. He's gone. He's going to be destroyed. And Jesus' followers wondered to themselves, how could such a horrendous event somehow transpire? And how would God use this at all? Things have fallen apart here. But God in His wisdom vanquished Satan and his army of evildoers. He provided salvation to those who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ and gives us a hope for power to work in us to make us new creations in Christ, all for the praise of his glorious grace. That's the wisdom of God, my friend. Well, thirdly, I want us to think now, how do we gain wisdom from God? Gaining wisdom from God. Well, you know what book I'm going to run to, don't you? James, James, the book of James. It is the New Testament wisdom literature, someone has called it. The book of James. Find your way there if you would, because James has emphasized the importance of being committed to proper goals, adopting the best way to pursue those goals. In the third chapter of James, he makes an interesting contrast. He says, you want to see what kind of wisdom you're following? Then look at the fruit of your life. And you'll begin to see what kind of wisdom you're pursuing. There's worldly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is the wisdom that says, I'm going to pursue selfish goals. I'm going to go after what I need most, and I'm going to make myself the most important person in the world because I am, and so therefore, it's all about me. If you're going to live that life that that believes that and pursues that, then he shows forth at the end of chapter 3, the fruit you're going to see in your life is bitter jealousy, Selfish ambition, arrogance, which leads to what? Instability. So you have the breakdown of marriages, you have breakdown of homes, you have breakdown of relationships in the workplace, breakdown of things in society. It all begins to become unstable, even in churches when people live that way. But heavenly wisdom, James 3, 13 to 18, heavenly wisdom produces what? When I am committed to saying, Lord, you are all wise, and I'm going to seek to adopt your ways of living and apply your truth to my life so that I can attain the same goals that you want me to pursue in ways that are appropriate and honorable, then the fruit of that, here comes the fruit of gentleness, the fruit of good behavior, which leads to righteousness, peacefulness, and integrity. Do we need that in our world today or what? To have a character, have your family or your life, your own life, characterized by righteousness, peacefulness, and integrity. That's when we say, Lord, I want your wisdom worked out in my life. You say, well, I don't have that wisdom. I mean, look at my life. I fall very far short of that. James 1 tells us, if you lack wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Just give up? If you lack wisdom, then uh, go, go ask your neighbor for suggestions on how to live a successful life. No, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It is God who gives wisdom to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to that person. God knows we need wisdom. And what's wonderful to hear at this point is if you come and ask wisdom of God, guess what? God is not going to wag his finger and say, hey, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Come and ask me for wisdom. Have you ever been scolded when you're asking for something? God is not going to scold you when you ask for wisdom. He's more than glad to extend wisdom to you when you seek him for it. He will give it liberally to you. 
He wants you to be wise. God supplies wisdom, not somehow just coming out of heaven and sort of landing on your breakfast table in the morning. He imparts wisdom to us through His Word. And I would encourage you as you think about Proverbs, we're told that the Lord gives wisdom, Proverbs 2, verse 6. He gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. If you learn to understand how God has spoken to us, much so much truth in His Word, you will begin to understand and see the goals more clearly of what He has in mind and understand the best ways to move toward those goals. It is the resources of God's Word and of His grace through the Holy Spirit applying the Word to our lives one day at a time. Now, we know that we need wisdom at those crucial moments when things are starting to really get hot. When things are getting heated, when there's difficulty that has arisen, James 1 is the passage that says, ask for wisdom. James 1 is also the passage that's talking about trials, afflictions, difficulties. How many of you have trials and difficulties in your life? Anybody have those? A few of you. Okay, a couple, couple more people added their hand. Okay, that's good. You're awake. That's good. See, the fact is we all go through trials. And James is tying together the, the, the situation in life where I go through trials is the time I need wisdom. Because guess what? When you go through trials and you start going back into human wisdom and more about me, 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 and my goals, my goals to be comfortable, be comfortable, guess what? You're going to have a rough time of it. You're going to be in a bad place in your heart. And there's going to be all sorts of ugly fruit that comes from it. We just talked about that. So here's what we do. When we face affliction and we're tempted to start giving advice to God, right, when you get bad times, here's the admonition. We need to ask Him for wisdom. Now, let me just take and jump real quickly here to one more passage in James. Follow me now because this all fits together. Further illustration of the point about suffering and looking for wisdom from God, let's turn to James chapter 5, page 1437. Stay with me. This is a very important point at the end. James chapter 5, verse 9, page 1437 at the bottom of the page of the Pew Bible. One, the, the important lesson about wisdom is found in the fifth chapter here when James calls his readers to be patient with each other. Why? Because when you go through hard times, oftentimes the people around you start bearing the consequences of your bad attitude and your impatience and your, your uh, flying off the handle and that kind of stuff like that. So he says, look here, I'm going to give you an example of Job. Job in the book of James. Did you notice that? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about wisdom. Job, it makes sense. Verse 9, as an example of suffering and patience, You have heard of the endurance or steadfastness of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now here's Job. You know the story, most of you who do. Job is a well-to-do individual who is blameless and he's upright. You've got to know that. He is doing the right things. His heart is right toward God and he is a person who has a a good heart attitude and knows God accurately as who he is. And yet, in the midst of all that, for, for unknown reasons to Job, he suffers tremendous loss. I mean, we think about the loss we're reading about in our, in what happened the last couple of days in Aurora, Colorado. 
you talk about loss. James is, I mean, Job deals with it. He lost all of his wealth. He was very wealthy. It's as if the stock market crashed uh, one day. And he loses all of his children in disaster, and he loses his health. He is in a tough, tough spot. And he struggles in the midst of this. He struggles with what's happening because he knows God. He knows right theology about God, and he knows that God is wise. He says so in the book numerous times. He affirms, God, you're wise. But he's struggling with the fact that he wants God to give him answers about all these things. And so he says, okay, God, I want to put you on the the witness stand. I got some questions for you. I want you to answer my questions. And after a long exchange, and the book is very long with this exchange between these three quote-unquote friends, they're not much friends if you ask me, and they've got bad theology, finally God finally speaks to Job. And what does he say? Well, I won't take the time to look through it all, but chapter 38 of Job, he starts asking questions. I mean, it's, it is rapid-fire questions to Job. Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Job, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? Does he spread his wings toward the south? He starts asking 64 questions of Job. Everything from the boundaries of the oceans to the movement of what appears to be the movement of the, uh, well, there is movement, among the heavenly bodies in the skies to all sorts of instinctive behavior of animals. He just quizzes them. Say, okay, Lord, do you understand all this stuff? And the one who knows all the answers is the one who says, I'm the one who's going to ask the questions here. And what he's saying to Job is, Job will affirm that there's much wisdom in God. Look at the way he made everything. He, he can affirm that. He doesn't understand everything in nature, but he affirms that. And now something has happened in his life where he wants God to explain everything. And what happens here at this point is, Job eventually realizes that when God asks those questions, he says, okay, I'm putting my hand over my mouth. I'm going to stop answering, ask questions. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Rather than find fault with God, he now humbles himself saying, okay, God, you don't owe me an answer. And I think I've, I thought this is a very helpful point here that Philip Ryken gives in his book called Discovering God. He says this, we should not expect God to give us all the answers. God has not chosen to reveal And hence, we do not know the details of God's plans. We know the goals. We know that God's wise in knowing how to get to those goals. But God does not tell us always the details about what he's doing. And God has revealed some of the reasons for suffering in his word. And there are some listed in your notes. You can look them up. There's there's others in the Bible. We can add to that. But he goes on and says, The world is full of things that we cannot explain or control right? In the natural realm. But we simply accept those things as a matter of course, right? Do you understand all the complexities of what happens in the heavenlies or what happens with all the, the, the wildlife around you? Do you understand all the ins and outs of why things, how these birds can migrate from one point to another point, find their way over thousands and thousands of miles they fly? Can you understand all that stuff? I just believe God's wise. Similarly, if God has enough wisdom, the notes are, it's right in your notes here, if God has enough wisdom to manage the boundaries of the sea, the motions of the heavens, and the instincts of the animals, he has more than enough wisdom to run your life. 
Now, do I get an amen on that? That was an amen point. If God has enough wisdom to operate all the natural realm, which we know he has tremendous wisdom to, to do that, he has more than enough wisdom to run your life. And then he quotes uh, Thomas Boston, a pastor in the 1800s, who said this, quote, To this wise God we may safely entrust all our concerns, knowing that he will manage them all so as to promote his own glory and our real good. I don't know what you're going through in your life. You may be going through what I was going through 18 or 19 years ago. You may go through something like that in the future. But I hope you'll not forget that in the midst of a storm, God alone is wise. We won't know all the reasons. We don't know all the details. We don't know all the answers. All the questions will not be answered. But my friend, you're left with the truth that God is wise. And it leads us right back to the cross. The cross reveals the wisdom of God. It looked to be the worst disaster that possibly could take place. It's turned into the greatest hope and the most glorifying, God-glorifying and God-blessing thing that's ever happened in the earth. Let's pray. To you, our wise God, we offer our prayer this day. For Father, we want to say, first of all, forgive us for offering you our puny advice. Forgive us for challenging, Lord, the goals that you have set and the different means and ways in which you're pursuing those goals. Forgive us, Father, for our insistence that we get answers to all of our questions at times. And I pray, Father, that you would humble us today, that like Job, that you would help us get to the point where we put a hand over our mouth and stop putting you on the hot seat to answer all the questions we want to know. And, Lord, that we would learn to appreciate and value and sense the wonders of your wisdom. That we would end up being like Paul, who, upon thinking through the greatness of your plans and how you've done things in history, that we would be able to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom that you have. How unsearchable are your judgments. And your ways are beyond even understanding. Father, I pray that you would help those among us today who have maybe gone through or are going through or maybe will go through some horrendous forms of suffering and difficulty where they may be sinned against, Lord, where they may be dealing with injustice or physical pain or whatever it is, Father. Lord, I pray, give them wisdom. May they seek you for wisdom. Wisdom in the trials of life. And may they know that you're the kind of God who wants to give wisdom, that you're not going to rebuke them and make them feel like an idiot for asking. You welcome them to come and give generously to all who come asking for wisdom. So, Lord, give us wisdom, we pray. Give us wisdom to see that the cross is our only hope. Give us wisdom to see that Jesus is the one who can change us on the inside. He can give us joy and peace and hope and love unending and a new heart 
and new motives and new desires and new longings. Father, we pray that you, by your wisdom, would accomplish your agenda in our hearts and that we would find joy in knowing that you're going to do that and that we would know with certainty that all things are working together for good, that you're causing them to work together for good to those who truly love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, help us to long for your purposes in our lives and therefore to be trusting you as our all-wise God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.